And a happy birthday today to Jolie Scarborough. And Jolie, you are joined by several famous birthdays. One is actor Tony Lobianco, who turned 87 today. Artist Peter Max, who turned 86. Actor John Lithgow, 78. And singer Jeannie C. Riley. So Jolie, happy birthday to you and to all those famous folk that you share a birthday with. You are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. If you're hearing us on your television on Iowa PBS and you are not a registered IRIS listener, please give us a call at 515-243-6833 so we can get you on our list. We need to know who's listening in order to keep our services free. Now, back to Linda with the first of our obituaries. From Portland, Oregon, Randall Randy Bruce Whitgey, 78, passed away on Thursday, October 5th. Rand is survived by his children, Melinda Whitgey, including her partner Brandon Boone, Brad Whitgey, partner Gretchen Landgraf, grandchildren Jonathan, partner Stephanie, Kaylin, partner Johnny, and Arnold, including Delany Ross, and Julian and Adeline Whitge, brother David Whitge, son-in-law Jeff Mason, and former son-in-law Paul Cluding. Rand was preceded in death by his wife Marilyn Whitge, his daughter Rebecca, <coughs> nicknamed Becky Whitge Mason, and his brother Roger Whitge. Rand was born on January 23, 1945, to Arnold and Rosamond Storer Whitgey in Council Bluffs. He graduated from Thomas Jefferson High School in 1963, then later from the University of Nebraska, Omaha, with a degree in journalism. He married Marilyn Miller, his love since eighth grade on December 2nd, 1968. They moved to Des Moines and eventually settled on the exact same street as Rand's brothers. Rand's newspaper career began with the nonpareil in Council Bluffs. Then he moved to the Des Moines Register in 1971, where he stayed until his retirement in 2008. <clears throat> his career spanned sports to news, copywriting to editing. In the newsroom, he was beloved and respected by his colleagues for his editing expertise, his supervisory skills, and his humor. He mentored, guided, and inspired many younger journalists. Until his move to Portland, Oregon in 2022 to be near his son, Rand still had the register delivered daily. <clears throat> In retirement, Rand was the long-standing organizer of a register alum group that gathered routinely for food and conversation. He was a movie buff, the giver of pragmatic advice, the feeder of squirrels, and the absolute best grandpa you could imagine. Bampa, as he was known to his grandkids, was revered as their most steadfast supporter, biggest advocate, and best friend. He would talk to them for hours, sharing stories, playing games, and imparting wisdom. He was truly treasured by them. Some fun facts about Rand. He was a class officer and an athlete in high school. He had a passion for sports and even created his own baseball statistics game. He would buy groceries for people in need and quietly leave them at their doorstep. Step. He never judged a soul. He was a stellar copy editor and wrote award-winning headlines. He helped his kids with school projects and taught us how to research topics. He coached his son's basketball and baseball teams. He loved going for drives. He decorated family graves all over Iowa every Memorial Day. He cherished his friends and loved ones. Rand is greatly missed. Please go see a movie in his honor. Services will be Saturday, October 21st at 10 a.m. at Caldwell Parish on Hickman Road in Urbandale. Private interment will be in Oak Grove Cemetery in Missouri Valley, Iowa. 
In lieu of flowers, memorial contributions may be made to the Emmanuel Methodist Church. Loann Marlene Dirks Dodge from Ankeny. She was 89 and passed away Monday, October 16th. Funeral services are Saturday, October 21st at 10 a.m. at Holy Trinity Lutheran Church on Des Moines Street in Ankeny. Visitation is 9 to 10 before the service. Burial at Pleasant View Cemetery in Hartley, Iowa at 3.30 p.m. Born October 12, 1934 to Leroy H. and Fern Weibert Dirks. Graduated 1952 Merrill High School in Merrill, Iowa with continued education at Sioux City Business School graduating in 1954. Worked at insurance company in Sioux City and met the love of her life, Gordon L. Dodge. Married November 7, 1955 and had two children, Gary and Lisa Ann. Loann worked for Legislative Service Bureau of Iowa and eventually became code editor for State of Iowa, retired in 1999 after many wonderful years. Loanne is survived by her two children, Gary L. Dodge and wife Jane Pauba Dodge of Des Moines, and Lisa Ann Dodge Menz and husband Richard of Slater. Five grandchildren, Jessica Dodge of Des Moines, Morgan Dodge and wife Riley of Pleasant Hill, Victoria Menz of Kansas City, Missouri, Christina Sheets and husband Cole of Nevada, and Alexandra Ayokomimi and husband Dennison of Fort Worth, Texas. Three great-grandchildren, Samuel Richard and Lila Jean Sheets and Cooper Ayakomini. Also a brother, Harlan Dirks and his wife Joan of Indian Land, South Carolina. Loann is preceded in death by her husband, Gordon L. Dodge, her parents, Leroy and Fern Weibert Dirks, and her brother, Ordell Dirks. Memorials in Loann's name may be directed to the Holy Trinity Catholic, I'm sorry, Lutheran Church in Ankeny or the Des Moines Symphony. Send any correspondence to Box 34, Slater, Iowa, 50244. Many thanks to the Mill Pound Nursing Care Center in Ankeny for their tender, loving care for Loanne. <coughs> Dan Patrick Jordan of Urbandale passed away October 15th at Mercy Hospital. Visitation will be held Friday, October 20th from 5 to 7 p.m., on Hamilton's South Taft Funeral Home. Mass of Christian Burial will be Saturday, October 21st, 10.30 a.m. at St. Pius X Catholic Church. There is a full obituary at hamiltonsfuneralhome.com. James Orlin Eichelman, 60, of West Des Moines, died October 11th. Services will be held at the West Des Moines Open Bible Church on October 20th at 11 a.m. Jim was born April 13, 1963, to Joseph and Jane Eichleman. He graduated from Valley High School. Jim loves sports, fishing, bowling, and coaching his son's sports teams. He was a lifelong fan of the Iowa Hawkeyes, Dallas Cowboys, and Cincinnati Reds. He is survived by his wife, Andrea, two sons, Jacob, partner Esther Kromptman, and Zechariah, partner Aaron Eichleman, his mother, Jane, partner Dick Larson, and sister, Janine Cox, along with many nieces and nephews. He was preceded in death by his father, and his brother, Joseph Eichleman. Donations can be made to the West Des Moines Open Bible Food Pantry. Richard Lee O'Neill, 86, of Johnston, formerly of Urbandale, passed away peacefully October 12th. You can visit the memorial website, forevermiss.com. Arthur Cross of Des Moines, 
age 99, went to be with his Lord and Savior on Sunday, October 15, at Deerfield Retirement Community. His wife, Lorraine, preceded him in death December 25th in 2008. They shared 65 years of marriage together. Born in Des Moines, Iowa in 1924, he was the son of Floyd and Edna Cross. Arthur graduated from Woodside High School, now Sedell. Arthur continued college studies in business and engineering at Drake and Wichita State University. In September 1942, Arthur enlisted in the Army Air Corps. He entered cadet training to become a pilot and instructor of B-24 and B-29 aircraft. He was scheduled for departure to the Pacific Theater when the atomic bomb was dropped in Japan and the war ended. His military service lasted 39 months. Arthur began his automobile dealership career in the service department of Sanders Motor Company in Des Moines. After the war, Arthur joined the Ford Motor Company district office, serving as customer relations manager, fleet and leasing manager, and truck merchandising manager. Arthur moved his family to Wichita, Kansas in 1968, where he worked for Beach Aircraft Corporation for 21 years as district and regional marketing manager. He retired from Beach Aircraft in October of 1989. Arthur received Jesus Christ as his personal Savior and was a member of Sailorville Church, serving on the board for many years. He taught Sunday school classes and Bible studies throughout his years. He will be remembered for his strong, unwavering faith in Christ. He is survived by two sons, Randy and wife Janet, and Hal, wife Nancy, six grandchildren, Allison, Mark, Matthew, Andy, Rachel, and Beth, and 16 great-grandchildren. The celebration of Arthur's life will be held at Sailorville Church, which is on 6th Northwest 6th Drive in Des Moines on October 23 at 11 a.m., with visitation preceding the service at 10 a.m. Burial will occur immediately following at Highland Memorial Gardens, which is on Northeast 60th Avenue. In lieu of flowers, the family has requested that remembrances be made in the form of contributions to Sailorville Church or the charity of your choice. Kitty Madison of Des Moines. Kitty Marie Madison, 73, of Des Moines, left us Wednesday, October 11, following a long battle with her health at Methodist Hospital. She was surrounded by her children at the time of her passing. Kitty, also known lovingly as Corky, was born January 5, 1950, in Des Moines, Iowa. She was the daughter of Mary Anna Williams and Raymond Wright. Kitty grew up on the south side along Scott Avenue. She was saved as a child and loved the Lord. Kitty was a faithful member of Amazing Grace Ministry. She attended East and Tech High Schools, then joined the workforce, most notably logging more than 30 years combined at Northwestern Bell and U.S. West. Following early retirement, Kitty returned to school to earn her associate degree in electrical engineering from Hamilton College. Returning to work, she held positions at Prairie Meadows, Prairie Meadows Marsden Building Maintenance, and Ruan Transportation Management Systems. Left to cherish her memory are her children, Glenia Sellers, Justin Madison, Jason Madison, her grandchildren, Jordan Sellers, Gia Madison, and former spouse, Glenn Sellers, and numerous cousins. Preceding Kitty in death are her grandparents, parents, aunts, uncles, and former spouse, Jerry Madison. Kitty's going home celebration will be held at Merle Hay Funeral Home on October 21. A visitation will be held from 11 a.m. to noon. Kitty's funeral service will begin right after the visitation at the same location. And finally, Elizabeth McBee. Elizabeth, known as Liz Ann Wheeler-McBee, 77, died Monday, October 16, after open-heart surgery at Mercy Hospital in Des Moines. A memorial service will be held at 10.30 a.m. Monday, October 23rd, at Sacred Heart Catholic Church on Grand Avenue in West Des Moines. Visitation from 9.30 a.m. until the service time. Liz was the second of six daughters born to Bernard Thompson and Claire Inez Cornwell Wheeler. 
in Spencer, Iowa on April 9, 1946. She graduated from Spencer High School in 1964 and moved to Des Moines, where she met her future husband, Colin, who had recently completed his Navy service. Liz and Colin reconnected in December of 1970 and were married on February 4, 1972 at Holy Trinity Catholic Church. Liz obtained her nursing degree in 1971 from Des Moines Area Community College and worked in Des Moines hospitals and nursing homes before ending her paid nursing career at the Iowa Foundation for Medical Care, where she made many dear friends. Liz was truly selfless. Sit down and talk to her for 10 minutes and she was your friend. She rarely talked about herself. Her conversations would always be focused on what was going on in your life. She gave freely to various charities and volunteered at Impact Community Services, delivering groceries to those in need. Liz did not have time for other activities as she took away from her interactions with family and friends. If she wasn't in their presence, she was on the phone with them. Liz will be missed terribly by her husband, Colin, her children, grandchildren, and friends. Those who will miss her forever are her husband, Colin, sons, Bernie and partner, Michelle Dillman, and Patrick and partner, Leslie McBee. Daughters, Katie McBee and partner, Tress. Tracy Sheriff, Molly McBee, Leo, and Tori Jane Dillman. Grandchildren, Olivia, Eli, Aiden, Nick, Nate, Anthony, Kylie, Shane, Matt, Emily, Josh, Gabe, and Daphne. Great-grandchildren, Nara, granddog, Lita, sisters, Maggie, partner, Colin, Stephen, Patsy Wheeler, Katie and partner Tom Strabing, and Terry Wheeler. Liz is preceded in death by her parents, her sister Joan, and grand dog Angel. Memorials may be made to Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Liz's name. And Linda's smiling, and it's about those grand dogs. I have grand dogs, too, so I get that. <laughs> I've always wanted to put the dog in the paper. Well, but returning to the main section, we have some political articles, seeing how there is an election coming up. Courtney Clark running again for Waukee mayor. One candidate, incumbent mayor Courtney Clark, is running for Waukee mayor. The Des Moines Register asked the candidate to respond to questions on why they're running and the issues their community is facing. Their answers may be lightly edited for clarity or length. The election is November 7th. So Courtney, age 42, grew up in Des Moines. Her current home is Waukee. Her education, bachelor's in management and bachelor's in international business from Iowa State University. Her political experience, mayor of Waukee 2020 to the present. Waukee city council member prior to that for 2018 to 2019. The question, why are you running? This is my home. This is where my husband and I live and where we raise our children. While Waukee is already one of the best places to live, I believe we can always improve. I feel called to serve my community and leave it better than I found it. Waukee has a lot of strengths, but also a lot of challenges that come with our growth. My background in business leadership and finance helps navigate these challenges. Additionally, I serve on several regional boards that help provide strategic opportunities for partnerships across the metro. What is the biggest issue facing your community and how would you address it? Our biggest challenge is how to continue to fund infrastructure, roads, water, stormwater, and sewer projects as we grow. Each year we spend between 25 and 45 million dollars on these projects without increasing our property tax levy. However, this takes prioritization, significant strategic planning, and the continual sourcing of funding opportunities. Other challenges include maintaining our hometown centers even as we grow, diversifying housing and job opportunities, and continuing to enhance our residents' quality of life. 
Next question: How would you work with community leaders, developers, and stakeholders to improve access to affordable housing in Waukee? We have already made strides in this area. Our city council, city staff, and I worked with developers to create an affordable housing project that was submitted for funding to the Iowa Finance Authority this year. While we were not awarded funding in 2023, our commitment remains. We have worked with developers to make our land shovel ready. Central Iowa Shelter and Services to identify other funding opportunities and Habitat for Humanity to create a secondary plan for a portion of our land. Through these and continued efforts, we will improve access to affordable housing in Waukee. The third question, and this is the last one: Waukee does not pay into the Des Moines Area Re- Regional Transit Authority. Should that change, and if so, how much should Waukee invest, and what level of service would you like to see in the community? Public transportation is incredibly important, and we know that DART is a great system. In past discussions with DART, the cost to provide just an express service to Waukee far outweighed the service. Those costs would result in significant increases to our residents' property tax levies. And therefore, it's critical we make sure we actually meet our residents' needs. During strategic planning earlier this year, we identified the need for a full transportation needs analysis for our residents and businesses. We expect to complete that over the next year, which will help us identify our service needs and opportunities. Waukee School Board election has five candidates, and this is an article that is in design to help you meet them. Five candidates are running for three open seats on the Waukee School Board, including Kate Boonstra, Amy Jepson, incumbent Wendy Marsh, Tammy Rubino, and incumbent Michael Tretton. The Des Moines Register asks each candidate to respond to questions on why they are running and issues their district is facing. Their answers may be lightly edited for clarity and length. The election is November seven, and I'll just tell you right now we're not going to be able to get through all of these questions, but we'll take as many as we can get. The first is、um, the first question. There are、uh, there's some background exper-、uh, experience information here about、uh, ages and political experience and so forth, but I'm going to go move right to the questions to see if we can get as many as possible in here. So the question: Why are you running, Kate Boonstra? Public education is very important to me personally and professionally. I'm a fourth generation teacher, preceded by generations of women who pursued higher education in times when Few were encouraged to do so. I have served multiple Iowa districts as a vocal music teacher and worked in Waukee as an extended learning program, which is sometimes called gifted and talented teacher. My experiences as a parent, educator, and community member have reinforced the importance of thoughtful local decision making when it comes to our schools. I look forward to applying these skills and experiences to board service. Amy Jepson says, "My candidacy for the Waukee School District School Board is driven by one unwavering focus: ensuring the well-being and future of our children." Wendy Marsh says she's running because I have t- been a resident of the Waukee district since 1998 and have a great love for the school system and the community. I've served on the board for the past four years and have learned a great deal from serving that I would like to carry over into a second term. My primary goals are to help ensure that all of the students in the district are educated in a welcoming environment and receive the best possible education experience. Recruit and retain the best teachers. And maximize the school finances in furtherance of those goals.
Tammy Rubino says, I'm running for Waukee School Board because I feel called to serve our community in a more meaningful way. Waukee is an extraordinary place to raise a family, anchored in the exceptional reputation of our public schools. As a community continues to grow, we need strong leadership on the school board to ensure this legacy of excellence perseveres for generations to come. As a board member, I'll contribute to this important mission by protecting our students, championing our teachers, being a trusted partner to administrators, a strong advocate for parents, and a responsible steward of tax taxpayer dollars. And Michael Tretton says, I was appointed to the Waukee School Board in December of 2022 to complete the remaining term of another candidate. I've thoroughly enjoyed the work and believe I've brought my expertise to the board and the finance committee. I'm a firm believer in the benefits of public schools and want to do everything in my power to support all students, teachers, staff, and administrators. The second question, what is the most pressing issue facing the school district and how would you address it? Boonstra says the best outcomes for students come when families, teachers, administrators, and community members all work together. I worry that public opinion toward educators seems to have shifted towards suspicion and away from respect and trust. Ongoing scrutiny and fear of condemnation has been destructive to the sense of collective efficacy among educators in Waukee and elsewhere. My work on the board will emphasize all the great things happening in the district while encouraging continuous improvement. Amy Jepson says, I believe there are a few issues that are equally pressing, but one that I think must, most of us agree on is that needs to be addressed immediately is funding. Real-time funding is a crucial issue. Currently, we count our students in October, but don't receive funding until the following July. It would be beneficial to a growing district like Waukee to have increased real-time funding. I'm committed to collaborating with the state legislators to pursue such legislation. Wendy Marsh's response says the chronic underfunding of public schools is by far the biggest issue facing the Waukee School District. The district has been growing exponentially at a rate of about 500 to 600 students per year, and last year the district received just 3% SSA funding from the state. In an economy with inflation rates of 8% and more, increasing teacher pay by 3% makes it extremely challenging to attract and retain teachers. Board members can educate legislators on the need for adequate public school funding, as well as maximizing the impact of existing funds and finding alternative methods for improving the environment for teachers. Tammy Rubino says the nationwide teacher shortage is a real concern for the future of education. Teachers are quitting the profession at an alarming rate, and fewer students are graduating from teacher programs. Although Waukee has made tremendous strides to be more competitive with pay and benefits, that is not only the only consideration. Teachers want to work in a supportive, safe environment. They want to feel valued, and ultimately they want autonomy to effectively educate our kids. Retaining our experienced teachers and attracting new talent must be a top priority to sustain the high quality of education in Waukee. And Michael Tretton says that funding for public schools is top of the list. Public schools in Iowa have been underfunded for years, and now a significant source of potential funding has been stripped away for educational savings accounts. I've been actively involved in lobbying the Statehouse and will advocate for additional public school funding. The third question, how would you balance the needs of students and staff while complying with a new state law, Senate File 496, that restricts certain books and LGBTQ instructions for certain grades? Boonstra says, I'm concerned anytime public policy negatively impacts students, particularly those from marginalized communities, whether it's SF 496 stipulating age appropriateness for library materials and confining discussion of gender identity and sexual orientation to seventh grade and above, or House File 802 from a previous legislative session that prohibits stereotyping and scapegoating, among other defined concepts. Districts have little choice but to comply with state law. As a board member, I would work to prevent these laws from being overinterpreted. I'm committed to doing all I can to ensure the safety and welcome each student and adult in our school. Amy Jepson said, our superintendent, a former Iowa director of education, inspires trust and confidence. He is actively working with district librarians to implement the law and support our teachers in meeting the students' needs within our district.
Wendy Marsh's response, the implementation of the law has certainly been a challenge for school districts as they are still awaiting guidance from the Department of Education in this regard. As such, districts have had to determine which books include, quote, sex acts as intended by the law without any assistance. Board members can help prevent implementing the law broader than what was intended by the legislature. I would further try to provide a support system for students targeted and being harmed by the effects of the law, as well as ensuring a safe and supportive environment for all students and staff. Tammy Rubino says school board members are obligated to protect the school district from legal exposure by adhering to all laws and regulations regardless of personal opinion or political affiliation. In my capacity as a board member, I have confidence in our school administrators to navigate the requirements of SF 496 and trust that they will handle compliance in a way that will not only minimize controversy within our community, but also mitigate disruptions to students, teachers, and staff. And Michael Tretton replies, the law is the law, so it must be followed. The key is to provide resources and support that are allowed within the guidelines. And with that, we'll wrap up this shift, and I'm going to provide this program note that we started our shift with to remind you that at the request of our listeners, Iris is moving the air times of some of our newspapers. The Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge, Fort Dodge Messenger have been combined into a one-hour show that you will hear at noon. 1 p.m., it's the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. 2 p.m., you'll hear the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. Your Cedar Rapids Gazette is now on at 3 p.m. each day. 4 p.m., it's the Sioux City Journal. At 5, you can hear the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil. At 6 p.m. is the rebroadcast of the Des Moines Register. At 8, you'll hear readings from the Iowa Source on the Iowa Hour. At 9 p.m., it's Golden Radio. 10 p.m. is the Wall Street Journal, and we wind up the day with the New York Times at 11. Well, for the last 90 minutes, your readers have been Linda Lundgren and me, Twyla Glenn. It's been our pleasure to read for you. Now we'll take a short break to allow our next readers to get into place. are Dorothy Hockenberg and Lisa Horsch. We will now continue with articles from the Des Moines Register and the USA Today. And here's Dorothy with an opinion. Is Ernst can bring down drug prices for Iowa. Every day, Iowans rely on prescription drugs to live their lives. 
but the sticker shock they feel at the pharmacy is a hard pill to swallow. For years, drug prices in America have made it harder for Iowans to make ends meet every day and force us to choose between paying the electric bill or buying life-saving medication. The new drug law passed last year will help many people, but there is more to be done. Our elected leaders must finally offer all patients and consumers some relief. According to the Department of Health and Human Services, Americans pay roughly 2.5 times more for their prescription drugs than people in other nations, with co-pays and out-of-pocket prices reaching further and further into our wallets. This is a problem on a massive scale, as the Kaiser Family Foundation reports that more than 6 in 10 Americans take at least one prescription regularly, and more than 8 in 10 feel that drug prices are unreasonable. This crisis has been spiraling for years. One of the primary factors contributing to this problem is that our prescription drug market is becoming increasingly anti-competitive. When drug companies develop a new treatment, patent law dictates that they get a certain amount of time for that product to enjoy exclusivity on the market. After that exclusivity period ends, competitors are allowed to develop lower-cost generic and biosimilar drugs that are just as effective as the original product, but often come at a significantly lower price to patients. However, brand-name drugs companies have mastered the art of manipulating patent monopolies to extend the amount of time that their products, and only their products, are available. They use tactics like slightly altering drug formulas to secure a new patent, paying off competitors to delay entry of competing products, or securing a frivolous amount of patents to lengthen their window of exclusivity. These tactics represent abuse of monopolies, and they are a leading contributor to the high prices that Iowans pay at the pharmacy. An issue of this scale requires strong, excuse me, I have to take a little glass of water here. President Frog comes in. <clears throat> An issue of this scale requires strong bipartisan policies that rein in anti-competitive practices of drug companies and promote a fairer, more affordable drug market. Right now, there are bipartisan efforts in the U.S. Senate to promote legislation that reduces price gouging and patent manipulation. It is essential that both parties come together to advance this legislation, because every day that Congress waits, more and more Iowans will be stuck paying exorbitant prices at the pharmacy. Thankfully, our Senator Joni Ernst has never been afraid to work across the aisle to tackle the major problems harming Iowans, including the drug pricing crisis. She has always put the needs of Iowans above partisanship, and I have faith that she will stand with us now to bring down the prices of our prescriptions in a bipartisan way. For too long, pharmaceutical companies have gotten away with gaming the system for their personal profit at the expense of Iowa patients. Senator Ernst has the power to stop them. Looking at letters to the editor, high-end homes aren't all the Metro offers. This is written by Robert Brown from Ankeny. Why does the register feature homes that only a small fraction of readers can actually afford? Most of us will never be in a position to visit, much less own such a property. It seems more reasonable to feature homes that are the vast majority of readers have a chance in reality of owning. I understand the need to dream, but... Again, by Robert Brown from Ankeny. Three nights of trick-or-treating is too, too many. This is written by Stephen Whitaker of um, Altoona. 
Some local officials think it's a good idea to move Beggar's Night to the Saturday before Halloween. The reasoning is the little ones will get tired by 8 at night. This act is sheer lunacy. Halloween is on October 31st, period. It is bad enough that the Des Moines Metro is the only place on the planet that has Beggar's Night on the 30th. All these officials who voted for the lame Saturday before proposal should be subject to providing a full-size candy bar to anyone who comes to their door. Bah humbug. Again from Stephen uh, Whitaker of Altoona. Planned Parenthood book sales should continue. This is from Tim Urban of Des Moines. Amber Gustafson praised the decision by Planned Parenthood to sell the book warehouse to the city and invest the proceeds in an endowment fund for sex education in Iowa. This is in um, reference to her October 12th essay. If the endowment generates income for programming in Iowa, rather than supporting staff and overhead of Planned Parenthood in Minnesota, it will be a good thing. But Gustafson overlooks the incredible legacy of the book sale as an enterprise engaging hundreds of Iowans every year in support of women's health and reading. Book sale volunteers make the sale financially successful. Let's hope these volunteers are given the chance to find a new warehouse, continue to run the book sale, and support literacy without bans and local programs for women. This would be a win-win for women in Iowa. Again from Tim Urban of Des Moines. Defining diversity and equity. This comes from Eric Reisenberg of Des Moines. Diversity is our greatest strength. Though equity means we are all the same, we all have the same goals, skills, and ethics. In fact, that we are all born exactly the same also means any disparate outcome anywhere in life is inherently the result of systemic imposed unfairness. Because in an equitable world, everyone's life would be exactly the same. This means all humans are interchangeable, except when it comes to representation. We can only be represented by people who look like us, though race and gender are social constructs, so anyone can claim to look like us, and we must agree. If you consider this confusing, be careful, and good luck to you. Again from Eric Reisenberg of Des Moines. Pella Library plan isn't an aberration. This is from Frank McCammond of Redfield. I said to my wife a while back that as soon as the book banning groups get their way with schools, they would go after public libraries. Well, behold what's happening in Pella with a ballot measure to make their library's decisions subject to politics. Most of these efforts are in no way grassroots. They are proposed and coordinated by national out-of-state conservative groups like the American Legislative Exchange Council. That is why all the red states seem to come up with laws and attacks that sound very similar. This will not stop with Pella. Time to read Fahrenheit 451. Again from Frank McCammond of Redfield. And our final letter, Iowa's top cop supports notorious crime suspect. This is written by David Leonard of Waukee. Attorney General Brenna Byrd's endorsement of Donald Trump is a clear indication of how far Iowa Republicans have fallen. Here is our state's chief lawyer endorsing a chronic liar under four indictments and 91 criminal charges. What would Trump have to do before Byrd would conclude he wasn't worthy of her endorsement? Again, written by David Leonard of Waukee. Dorothy? And our next one is Know How Dense Breast Tissue Affects Cancer Screening. So your turn, and this is by Bridget Pargulski, and she is a founder of the Iowa Army of Pink. Reading a normal mammogram is like looking for a pine tree on a prairie. Reading your mammogram was like looking at a forest of pine trees and trying to decide if there is an ugly one. I will never forget these words spoken by my oncologist, Dr. Robert Schreck, shortly after my breast cancer diagnosis. He was trying to help me understand how my cancer could have gotten so advanced before it was detected. My name is Bridget Kargolsky, and I am a breast cancer survivor and founder of the Iowa Armory of Pink. I founded this group to organize and enlist help in spreading awareness on the issue of dense breast tissue 
and its impact on mammography and breast cancer risk. I did not want what happened to me to happen to anyone else, but I would learn that it was happening to other women far too often. I never missed a mammogram. I did self-exams. I did everything that I was supposed to be doing to find breast cancer early, even though breast cancer did not run in my family. So how was my cancer not diagnosed until it was stage 3 and advanced into my lymph nodes? Turns out there is a very simple explanation. I had extremely dense breast tissue, which makes it hard or impossible to see breast cancer on a mammogram. This is a fact that I did not understand until it was too late. According to breastcancer.org, dense breast tissue makes it harder for doctors to see cancer on mammograms. This increases the risk that cancers will be missed. The American Cancer Society warns, screening mammography misses about one in eight breast cancers. Women with dense breasts are more likely to get a false negative result. I would later learn at the Mayo Clinic that my cancer had likely been there for five years. That means I had four mammograms that were interpreted as normal when I did actually have cancer. After learning that I had extremely dense breast tissue that delayed my diagnosis, I wanted to learn everything I could about breast density. I learned that it is very common. According to Mayo Clinic, quote, about half of women undergoing mammograms have dense breasts. Approximately 40% of women are in the heterogeneously dense category, and 10% are in the extremely dense category. The other 50% of women fall into either the fatty or scattered categories, which are not considered dense. Breast density is simply fibrous and glandular tissue in your breast, as opposed to fat. It is normal tissue in the makeup of our breasts. However, it reflects white on a mammogram, and so does cancer. Some have compared reading the mammogram of women with dense tissue to looking for a snowball in a blizzard. I was also very surprised to learn that having dense breast tissue puts you at higher risk for getting breast cancer. Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center reports, people with highest density are four to six more times likely to get breast cancer than people with least dense breasts. This level of risk is second only to having the BRCA gene. Dense breast tissue is not something you or your provider can feel. The only way to know if you have dense breast tissue is by getting a mammogram. The radiologist will determine in which breast density you are. And thanks to advocacy efforts of the Iowa Army of Pink, your density category will be reported to you in your mammogram results letter. The Iowa Army of Pink is now 10 years old. Our efforts have had an undeniable impact <coughs> on breast cancer screening in Iowa. For the first five years, we worked full-time in our role of advocacy. We felt it was very important to get breast density information into the hands of women directly. We spent countless hours at the state capitol educating legislators on the issue and urging them to pass a law that would require radiologists to inform women of their specific breast density category. Iowa's breast density inform law was passed in 2017 and went into effect in 2018. Breast density information is now provided in the mammogram results letter that comes in the mail directly to the patient after her mammogram. This notification also informs women that having dense breast tissue increases her risk of getting breast cancer. Women are encouraged to speak with their provider to determine if they need an additional test that is not impacted by density, such as a whole breast ultrasound or MRI to find cancer earlier.
After accomplishing our goal of getting breast density information into the hands of women, we turned our focus to education on this issue. We became a 501c3 nonprofit. We have welcomed every invitation to speak and share our message. We have spoken at conferences, health fairs, farmers markets, lunch and learns, medical schools, and for four years, we have had a presence at the Iowa State Fair, educating thousands of women in the Varied Industries Building. We have had our materials translated into Spanish and produced an educational video in Spanish to help educate our Spanish-speaking population. Having dust Brent's tissue is a double-edged sword. We are at higher risk than average to get breast cancer, and our cancers will not always be visible on mammography, even 3D mammography. This can delay diagnosis, making it harder to treat. No one should die of breast cancer, but early detection is critical. The Iowa Army of Pink is an all-volunteer organization. We need your help. If you would like more information about the Iowa Army of Pink or would like to join us as a volunteer, please email us at iowaarmyofpink at gmail.com. For more information on breast density, please visit our website, www.iowabreastdensity.org, or a national website, www.densebreast-info.org. And we'll take one short little moment here to um, read one sports story, which is all we have time for before we get back to Dear Abby. So this, this is um, College Women's Wrestling Media Day. Hawkeyes carry for her mantra into first season. On November 4th, when members of the Iowa women's wrestling team step onto the mat for the first time in their Hawkeye singlets, it will be about one mantra for her. What does that mean? For Felicity Taylor, an Iowa native who never thought she would have a chance to compete for the Hawkeyes, it means to be the role model for the next generation. For Bella Mir, a Las Vegas na native, she never knew a community could have such a high level of investment and interest in women's wrestling. Because of that, she heads into the year competing not for herself, but for a multitude of people. I want to have a legacy where I was inspiring people and not just doing it for me, Mir said Wednesday during the Hawkeye Women's First Media Day. That selfless attitude comes from an appreciation that they could not have been here without people who opened the door for this opportunity, whether that be Title 19 or Title IX pioneer Dr. Christine Grant, a parent or a fellow teammate who pushed them to another gear that they didn't even know they had. It's also for the ones who will come after them, the women in Iowa who no longer have to imagine a day when they could wear the Hawkeye singlet, or maybe it's just for the ones they compete alongside with. For them, it's a good reminder for themselves and for this program when we can lead with gratitude and know that there's a bigger why than themselves. Iowa coach Clarissa Chun said Wednesday, on media day, the buy-in to that philosophy from the coaches and the wrestlers was evident. Here's some other key takeaways from Wednesday as excitement grows for year one of Iowa women's wrestling. When Iowa natives Taylor and Ella Schmidt were asked about their initial reaction when they found out, there would be a women's wrestling program at Iowa. They both smiled wide and had a twinkle in their eye. Schmidt and Taylor have both wrestled in Carvey Hawkeye Arena before as they wrestled up the prep ranks. Schmidt, a Bittendorf native, particularly remembers being a 60-pound girl wrestling in the middle of Carver, thinking that never in a million years would she be able to go back and wrestle for the Hawkeyes. Schmidt, a longtime advocate for girls wrestling, to be sanctioned parts of sport of, to be a sanctioned sport, at the high school level, was thrilled with the announcement from the Hawkeyes as a senior in high school. It was the best day of my life, Schmidt said. Taylor also badly wanted to don the black and gold for her home state team, but was pursuing student teaching while wrestling at McKendree. 
At the time of the announcement, she wasn't sure if it was going to be in the cards. After her coach departed, she felt the time was right to pursue her dream. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else after seeing thousands of fans pack Kinnick Stadium for Caitlin Clark and the women's basketball program this past weekend. It finally started to set in that the season is here and the excitement for women's sports is at an all-time high. And now we will do um, Dear Abby. Dear Abby, long-distance couple tries to hash out their future together. Dear Abby, I've been separated and divorced for two years. A year ago, I met a man through a mutual friend. He was also going through a divorce. We started communicating, fell in love, and have been traveling back and forth between Ohio, where he works and lives, and New Jersey, where I am. He wants me to quit my job and find a new one so we can make our relationship permanent in Ohio. I'm a sales support coordinator for a broker, and I have been with the company for some time. There's no guarantee I could find a job that pays as well as this one does. He has his own business and also cares for his elderly aunt and uncle. I want to be with him, but at my age, 60, I'm hesitant to start a new job. Also, I'd be leaving my adult kids behind and would miss them dearly. It's a dilemma because I want to be able to see my kids as often as we can, but I also love this man and want to share my life with him. How do I figure this out? That is from Hard Decisions to Make. Abby says, Dear Hard Decisions, Your work is cut out for you. Before making any decisions, do some exploring. Would moving out of state guarantee that you would have to sacrifice your well-paying job? Many people work remotely these days, and it wouldn't hurt to ask if it would be possible for you to do that with your current company. Are there similar job openings in the city where your gentleman friend lives? Relocating to Ohio would not necessarily mean you would no longer see your adult children. They could visit, and the reverse is also true. Other families surmount this challenge, and so could you. Give yourself some time to decide what is right for you. And the second letter is Dear Abby, I am divorced and have an adult son. He hasn't been back for four or five years. His dad had a heart attack, so my son took a few days to come home. I texted to see how his dad was doing and got only short responses. My son made no attempt to see me while he was here. Not a one-hour visit or even a phone call. I have never been so hurt. I'm beyond devastated. I know it's not about me, but I have feelings, and I feel like I don't exist to either of them. My ex and I are both in relationships. Should I quit trying to communicate with my son? I don't want to do this, but spin it any way you want. He didn't want to see me. So is it, quote, when a door closes, quit knocking? I am crushed. What should I do? Still mom in Canada. Dear Mom, your son's visit was not about you. It was about his father who had suffered a heart attack and could have died. It's entirely possible that your son had his hands full dealing with his dad and the circumstances surrounding his treatment and care. If you hadn't seen your son in four or five years, you may not have been that close to begin with. Leave it alone. If you continue to pursue and pursue personalize this, you will only drive your son further away. And that brings us to the end of the Des Moines Register for today, Thursday, October 19th. I'm Lisa Horsch, and my partner at the microphone has been Dorothy Hockenberg. Earlier, you heard from Linda Lundgren and Twyla Glenn. You can listen to IRA's programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Support for today's readings comes from the Des Moines Register, Iowa Public Radio, Iowa PBS, and bensoundmusic.com. Thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. 
And a quick announcement at the request of our listeners, Iris is moving the airtimes of some of our newspapers. The Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger have been combined into a one-hour show that you will hear at noon. 1 p.m. It's the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. 2 p.m. You'll hear the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. Your Cedar Rapids Gazette is now on at 3 p.m. each day. 4 p.m. It's the Sioux City Journal. At 5, you can hear the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil. 6 p.m. is the rebroadcast of the Des Moines Register. At 8, you'll hear readings from the Iowa Source on the Iowa Hour. 9 p.m. is Golden Radio, and 10 p.m. is the Wall Street Journal. And we will wind up the day with the New York Times at 11.